Well, we're going to be diving into a message this morning as we open up our Bibles. And and I've titled the message this, Rich or Poor? Now, uh, if you are somewhat in touch with culture or uh, watch the news or have turned on the TV in the last, like, couple months, you would have known that the Mega Millions and Powerball got up to, like, $2 billion, you guys. Like, this was insane, right? You guys, like, anybody like me, like, I'm the type of person, it's like, what would I do with that much money? You know what I mean? Like, what, what would be capable? Like, I think it involves, like, a lot of hot tubs and, like, you know what I mean? Like, your mind starts kind of, like, spinning and, like, going in different directions of, like, what in the world would you do with that much money? What would life be life. But I think many times economics in our life has a lot to do with perspective. Now, if you've ever been, uh, if you've you've been to our church whenever we've talked about money, there's there's something I shared uh, several months ago, and it's this website called globalrichlist.com. Anybody familiar with this this website? I would just encourage you to go to this website because it does. It gives you a new perspective. You can type in your annual salary or how much you make, maybe your hourly wage, and it kind of puts you into perspective globally of kind of where you kind of rank up to the, to the rest of the world's wealth. So I punched in a couple numbers. I punched in, well, really one number, um, $5,000 annual salary. So let's say you made $5,000 annual salary, um, and which, which actually equates out kind of hourly, kind of if you're working full time, to $2.60 an hour. So we're talking like a lot of people complain about minimum wage, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're talking about almost a third of Oklahoma's minimum wage. If you make that, if you make $5,000 a year, you are at the top 25% in the world. Top 25%. And like I said, being rich is many times about our perspective. About how we see it. You know that um, the the average laborer in Indonesia makes just 39 cents in the same time. If you live in the U.S., here's what I know. From a global perspective, you're rich. You're rich. You're in the top 25%. But sometimes we get so bogged down to our own world, our own perspective, our own thoughts about economics, the thought of, man, I want more. What would life be like with more more, more. And this is, this is different, difficult to sometimes reconcile when we open our Bibles. Because I don't know if you've ch- ever checked, like, Jesus' words, but it seems like Jesus has, like, an opinion about rich people, right? So we're going we're gonna to start off with a key verse that kind of disrupts uh, us a little bit in terms of, of economics. So we're going to start off with a verse out of Luke chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus speaks. He's, he's looking at his disciples, and he, he says this. He says, blessed Are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What does that mean for Americans? What does that mean for the, even if I make $5,000 a year, $2.60 an hour, which people would probably argue is nearly near slavery, right? That we're still within the top 25%. How do we reconcile this? So this morning, we're going to look at a perspective that kind of hopefully helps us build a theology around the economics of God and what Jesus means when he, he, he speaks this message that's included in the greatest sermon of all time called the Beatitudes. But what does it mean and how does that perspective kind of help us and how we see life? You know, Jesus' ministry 
was to the lepers, the sinners, the demonized, the toller tax collectors, women, so on and so forth, to the people that were on the fringes on the outside. So is it bad to be rich? Is it bad to be rich? So we're going to look at, really quickly, three stories where Jesus kind of calls out rich people. We're going to get out underneath the hood, and then we're going to build upon that perspective and hopefully gain a, a practical application kind of into our life today of what our perspective of rich or poor looks like in terms of the way that God sees it. So first we're going to look at a, a story in Luke chapter 12, starting with verse 16. Let's see what Jesus does here. It says this, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So here we go. We got a rich character, economically rich. He's got an abundance. Dude is balling when it comes to the harvest, right? Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This guy's looking at like, man, I'm so, I, I just, man, let's keep building. Let's keep building and surplusing this amazing empire of the fruitfulness that I'm seeing, and I'll kind of I'll arrive at this destination of my life. And then, and then Jesus gives his perspective, kind of disrupts what's going on here in verse 20, right? But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So if we were to summarize... Jesus is confronting this rich man in relationship with him not having a rich relationship with God. He's confronting the heart issue. How many guys thankful for Pastor Callie last week um, and her message, if you guys caught it? Uh, clean hands, cleaner heart. Yeah. Um, she does such an excellent job of dealing with this. Of, of many times we as people, we clean our hands, but we don't prioritize what God wants to do from the inside out in our lives. This theme comes alive once again in, in the scripture we just looked at. Let's look at another story concerning somebody who was well off or wealthy. Luke 16, starting with verse 19. Here we go again. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Guy had everything going when it come, came to an economic perspective during this time in this culture. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the assumption here is there's this man, and at his gate, he's got so much, he's got an abundance, but for some reason there's this need that continues to stick around when it comes to the economics of this man. Man, he just wishes to just, man, even eat the crumbs from this man's table, but the need continues, continues, right? In verse 22, the time came when the beggar died. So this man, this poor man, he, he passes away, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. One of the great patriarchs of the faith. And the rich man also died. His time came as well. Everyone's time comes eventually. Each and every one of us, we're slowly dying. We're all going to meet this moment where we enter into the exit of our life here on earth. The rich man was also died and buried. In Hades, 
also known as the realm of separation from God, also known as hell. It says this, for he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor anyone cross over from there to us. There's, there's this theological perspective about the chasm that exists for those who are in God's realm versus those who are not. But all we know about this character is a man who, even with his wealth, continued and continued to allow a need happen right in front of him as he turned a blind eye. And we see the results. We see Jesus confronting those who are rich but ignore the needs of others. Let's look at one last story, Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Many times Jesus spoke in parables. I love that. He spoke in pictures, illustrations. He wasn't a boring communicator. Hopefully none of you guys are falling asleep right now. Come on, somebody. Hey, hey. I see you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, verse 8. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. I feel like I've been in a situation like that in my life. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's humiliating. That's embarrassing. Uh, then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. Like, move seats. This isn't for you. But when you are invited, Jesus says, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is very interesting. We have a kind of a contextual story about being rich, being included within this kind of banquet. But Jesus confronts this idea of being rich and not being inclusive. Not inviting anyone else to the table with that in which you have abundance or have been blessed with. Here's what we understand pretty quickly is when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, we kind of understand pretty quickly based on these three stories, it's not simply social or economic. Let's look at a, a little equation that I think kind of helps us out in this cultural paradox, right? Two conflicting ideas that, that Jesus is using to prove a point. If you're economically rich and you are poor, you have poor trust in God, you're going to be disconnected from God's kingdom, his rule and reign, his, 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 the way that he sees and rules in this lifetime. We also see examples where people are economically poor, but they have a rich trust in God. And we see those people encountering and wrestling with and living within the scope of God's power and presence. And Jesus uses this cultural paradox to illustrate 
a spiritual point. Because during this time, those who were economically less than were being taken advantage of, being abused. So Jesus uses this cultural paradox to prove a larger principle and point that we're going to wrestle with this morning. We'll look at it better on the screen. You're spiritually bankrupt when earthly security is prioritized over God. Many times we want to confront and have conversations about the economics, what that looks like. But many times Jesus is confronting the richness of our connection with him, our connection with the higher power. But you, say, you might say, okay, that's great and all, but what about the economics? Is poverty spiritual? Because many times in the church, people take a vow of poverty as if they're a, like kind of like a, a, a going to a place of like higher power within spirituality, right? Is poverty spiritual? And I'll just say this from a biblical perspective, no. The theme within the scripture that we see isn't whether taking a vow of poverty being more spiritual, but it's a conversation rather about stewardship. So before we move on into the spiritual conversation, I think it's good for us to confront this idea about economics. And I think it's helpful, I think in a phrase kind of just really, kind of really reduces it down to a really, something that's really easy to remember. Bless or progress. When we are stewards of the economics of this world, God calls us to one of these two things, depending on what situation that you're in. You could be somebody who's extremely blessed. You have tons and tons of economics, and God ca would call you to a place of generosity, to be blessed, to be a blessing, right? Man, if we have much, man, we got to be people that are continually setting the example of generosity for others. But there's this other flip side of it that people are like, well, I just want to stay within the realm of just kind of vowing to poverty and never leave that. But that place is not a place that God calls us to in his stewardship. He calls us to be people that progress. God, in his design and his rule and reign on this earth, in the justice of God, in his power and his principles, ruling and reigning and spreading and being activated throughout our globe, sees a perspective where followers of him, followers of his perspective, followers of his rule and reign are the people that should be the ones that have their hands in the economics. And there should be that trickle-down effect. So you may be a person that you're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, but God would call you to grow today in your perspective. You know, one of the things that I think sometimes is so, just so challenging is just to really just identify where you're at and, and take steps forward. One of the steps that I would recommend in our library, we have, uh, I'm a big Dave Ramsey guy. We have a book. It's literally called Financial Peace. Uh, money, or actually, uh, what is it? Money Makeover? What is that? Total Money Makeover. It's a great book. Literally, if you're like, finances are in shambles right now, like you can literally pick up that book and acquire some of those principles and begin to take what he considers to be baby steps to begin to set a stage for financial generosity. Glory days that you can have ahead by making baby steps today. And I love it because that's within the scope and the perspective of good stewardship. We are not called to be people that sit on the sidelines and let culture dictate the economics of this world. But we could be people to step in, make steps forward, and use those resources to allow God's power and presence to rule among our globe. Man, if we really depend on the principles of Jesus, we should be the ones in positions of power making those economic decisions for our culture and our world. Amen? And that is the very place that God has called us to. We need to get and remove ourselves out of a poverty-stricken mentality and own up to the fact that each and every one of us can progress, bless, or progress. Generosity, stewardship, a place that God is constantly confronting when it comes to the economics of how God sees the world. 
But that's it. Now let's step back and continue to enter into this priority of a spiritual conversation. That even outside of the conversation of economics, God says, economics aside, there needs to be a security prioritized in me. Wherever we are today, Jesus is saying, you are spiritually bankrupt when you place earthly security and it's prioritized over God. When we have securities that are prioritized over God, here's what I know. It affects our values. It affects our existence, our daily existence. And here's what I'm so thankful. Man, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if, like, this whole God thing was a sham. If, if Jesus wasn't practical in my everyday life, there's no reason to, to participate in it. Can I just say that? If the resurrection didn't happen, then we probably shouldn't be following this guy who claimed to be raised from the dead. But for some reason or another, many people in the house this morning, maybe you've encountered this, this God. Maybe you're encountering this God this morning. Maybe you're understanding and wrapping your head around there's a God who sees you and loves you. But here's what I love about God. He goes so deep. He goes deeper than the richness of our economics and cares about the richness of our souls, how we live our lives. He cares about the others that are in need. He doesn't want us to be people that turn a blind eye in our abundance to those around us who need help. He goes deeper. He cares for those who are on the outskirts of society, those who are outside the walls of this church, and he desperately wants them to be become a part of the family. He cares. This is represented in what Jesus is confronting when he talks and confronts many of these wealthy and abundant people. But we got to grasp this simple principle. You and I at a human level, we are insecure without God. We are insecure without God, and it's due to sin. It's due to this word that's really Christianese that, that many times stru people struggle with, right? But I love sin in the Bible. Like there's a definition of sin that many times we just breeze over. But, but, but the Bible says all have fallen short, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I love that. You and I have to understand that we fall short. God's glory, if he is bigger, if he's greater, we fall short of that. And because we fall short of that, and because of us, and because of men, and because of sin in this world, lots of horrible things happen. There's a curse of, of sin on the world that has affected humanity, has affected this world. And it causes us to be extremely insecure. Like any observation of anyone insecure. If you're a person, maybe you're kind of more socially aware, or you're, you're unsocially aware, um, many times these are things that you can pick up on when somebody's insecure. I think from a male perspective, I think about generalizations. I'm going to generalize for a second. But I can definitely tell when there's a female that's insecure because she typically gives off something as a male you probably understand called single vibe. Right? Anybody? Like, I got single vibe, and I want everybody to know. I'm putting myself out there for everybody to see. And anybody with any social awareness is like, that comes from a place of insecurity. As a male, I'm like, yeah, some people are going to buy into that, but I'm like, not me. You know what I'm saying? Or how about this? As a male, sometimes I see other males with what I would call emotional prostitution. You know the guy. He's got to always have somebody by his side emotionally can't be alone, has always got to have a girl on his arm or his shoulder. Man, many times people fall into this trap as males. And if you have any social awareness, you're like, that's probably something deeper. That's probably an insecurity about your sexuality being expressed as a human being, right? 
But many times that's difficult because when we see those types of situations where people are insecure, it causes us to be irked. But how many of you guys know that that's the same way when God sees us? When it comes to sin, he sees how insecure we are without him. From his perspective, it's like, ugh. Without the perspective of God, it's like we're fighting for a cause. We're fighting for good to be accomplished in this world. But we can't really deal in our own human power with the solution to sin and death and evil. We can try, try, try again to activate our own human power and causes. But this morning, we have to admit that as human beings, we are imperfect. He sees how insecure we are this morning, but here's the question. Do you? Do you identify how insecure you are without God in the perspective of life? Got a question for us this morning. It's this. First question, do you identify you are poor without God? Do you depend on the world's order? Well-being, self-assurance, the dependence on a different set of values. Many times the world's values. Let's, let's look at 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. I like to say this is uh, one of those verses that a lot of people that claim to be followers of Jesus like to slap over the head and beat people with. So we're going to look at the context a little bit and unpack it because I think that's helpful. Uh, it says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. So people can just take that and say, okay, I hate the world. But if you ever read the most popular Bible verse, John 3, 16, you understand that God so loves the world. So there's a conflict here. Once again, we can't be people that run with Bible verses and beat people over the head with them. We have to build a theology from Genesis to Revelation in context, good Bible reading practices, because we have a lot of Christians that apply different applications, many being unhelpful towards the cause and the plans of Jesus and how he sees and views the world that we live in. Let's keep reading. The context gives us the clues. If anyone loves the world... Love for the Father is not in them. Woof! That one could be used for abuse as well. And it has been throughout church history. Verse 16. For everything in the world, here we go. Now he's going to give us some clues of, of what specifically he's talking about in the perspective of the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's like the old adage, gold, glory, girls. Or if you're a girl, guys, I guess, you know. It doesn't work as well from a female perspective, I guess. You know what I'm saying? Gold, glory, and girls, the three Gs, right? Maybe I'm the only one who's ever heard of that, right? Probably. Um, here we go. Comes not from the Father, but from the world. So it's not like hate the world in general. There's some things set up in our society that literally are going to be contrary to the values of the kingdom of God, how he sees the world, how he sees his rule and reign beginning to spread and manifest all over every nook and cranny of our society and our world, his mission, right? And he's talking about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, right? People that love money, people that are loving the pride, People that are loving the things of the flesh. People that are seeing things that maybe they can't have and are constantly valuing and applying so much time and attention to those things that begin to get prioritized over the value system of God in their life, right? Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. God's like, reorient your value system. Because when you're born into a world that has a value system, it's going to be a little bit different. Does that mean you hate the world and complain about the world and point about the world's problems and never do anything about it? No, but if you took the first half of this without the definition of what God's getting to the heart of, you can have that perspective. But I would argue there's a greater perspective. 
God is confronting specific things that we need to address in our lives. There's things that are going to be so easy to prioritize in our lives over God and his divine security, right? I think about my own life. I think about the value system of kind of the assumption in our culture, the American dream. I think about me as a 18-year-old, 17, 18-year-old, beginning to plan out my life after high school. I think about myself being like, hey, I'm a guy who kind of like, likes computers, likes kind of like the tech industry, and at this time in 2005, how it was beginning to kind of burst forth. And thinking to myself, man, like I would love to work for Google, not based on a value system of, uh, 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 that, that, that values some of the things we're talking about, simply based on a value system that says, I want to make a lot of money, and I want to be able to provide for my family. Those were the values that drove me to attend, apply, get accepted, gain a little bit of a, a scholarship to attend the University of Arizona, and begin pursuing a degree in computer science. But in the back of my mind, I knew, because God had already spoken, that God was calling me to a place of vocational ministry. I'm not a pastor's kid. They come from a pastor's family. So this was one of those things kind of out of the blue, like, eh, I don't know, God. You know what? I think I'd rather just take the safe route, pursue the American dream, make a tons and tons of money, graduate, understand that there's a Google headquarters being built in the Phoenix area, find a job, knowing that this workplace is competitive, that literally people get promotions all the time because they're looking for new people with tech skills, and it's literally their poaching company from company, knowing that that salary is going to continue to increase, 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 increase. I'm going to have all the security I need. I'm going to have the picture-perfect life. I'm going to be able to pursue the values of the American dream. But you want to know what my soul felt like in that season? It was the poorest season of my life. It was the season where literally I did be sitting in my dorm room, which in itself kind of felt like a prison because it was so small, staring up at the ceiling of my crappy dorm bed, understanding that there was something missing in my life. I wasn't doing, and I wasn't walking out according to the purposes of what God had called me to. This was for me personally. I'm not using this as a generalization for each and every person. Man, some of you are called to the tech industry. Once again, make a difference and steward and take advantage of the values of the kingdom married with the, person, the fact that you're going to be a person that's able to bless beyond belief. But for me personally, this was a season where it was like I was doing all the right things that culture was telling me, but I was so poor in my soul and spirit. If you're a young person in the room, you might be entering a stage where you're saying, what should I do with my life? I'll say this to you. Do something that will be good for your soul. Do something that will be good for your soul. Think about that now. Think about a life and a career. Think about your skill set. And do pursue your dreams in terms of understanding how God has created you through his lens and value system of how you can make a difference in this world. And you might be saying, well, that's great for all the young people. Well, what about me that's stuck in my job? Stuck in my reality, stuck in this situation where I feel stuck. And here's what I would encourage you if you find yourself in that situation right now. Literally, do not let the values of the world impress you on your life today. Start where you're at. There's a verse in the Bible that says that we are the priesthood of all believers. Here's what I believe. Each and every one of us, we are called to be pastors within our places of influence. Start where you're at today. I don't care wherever you're at. Begin to partner the principles of God with where you find yourselves at today. I don't care where you work. I don't care if it's minimum wage. I don't care if it's less than minimum wage. Here's what we know. You're in the top 25%, and you can make a vow today with the Lord saying, I'm going to choose to be the pastor of wherever I find myself. 
I'm going to walk into my job tomorrow, and I'm going to choose to be the pastor of my workplace. I'm going to treat those people as if they are my flock. I'm going to love them. I'm going to serve them. And here's what I know. When you begin to treat your, your, your life, your situation like that, you better watch out. Because it's kind of like a dangerous prayer that you make with the Lord. He's going to begin to pour out blessing, open new doors. Come on, somebody. There's going to be new things that are going to come from you simply just making a choice within your vacation that I'm going to connect it with God's plans and purposes wherever I find myself today. Come on. You and I can progress wherever we find ourselves. We're not hopeless. We're not without cause. But God informs those areas of our life. Which leads us into our next question. Have you lost recognition that you are poor without God? Here's what I know. We might have some church-going people in the room. But maybe you've lost it. You've lost the perspective that you once had. And the dependence upon God, upon there being even a value of God having a place in your life. Revelation chapter 3, pretty common section of scripture that many times people quote and are familiar with. We're going to look at it up on the screen this morning. It says, this is near the end of the Bible, right? Book of Revelation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here we are, getting to the heart of the issue. I got everything. But there hasn't been a set of priorities in my life, and now I find myself in such an empty space. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve, up, uh, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see those whom I love, I rebuke, and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they, they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus is giving us a perspective here. But it's interesting because many times people use this whole lukewarm kind of paradigm in a way that reflects God, you just can't be kind of mediocre. You got to be hot. You got to be hot. You got to be on fire, right? But it's really interesting because the backdrop of Laodicea and what's being confronted here, there, there's, a, there's literally this backdrop of a culture of what, what water kind of represented for this time. There was icy mountaintops where literally the rivers and the, and the streams would flow down. And this water, many times people would collect water up at the top. And when the water kind of trickled down, it became a temperature that's just kind of mediocre. It didn't serve its purpose. I think about water that's boiled, mixed with hot chocolate powder around Christmas time, much like our church did on Friday night when it was freezing outside, and how that water in that form served its purpose. Cold, refreshing water serves its purpose on the right occasion. But many times, how many of you guys just like stuff that's lukewarm? It's kind of gross. That's why you have a refrigerator. That's why you have a microwave, because these purposes serve the purposes of the extreme. This isn't talking about being on fire. It's talking about losing the purpose of the point of the water. Has your life lost its purpose? Have you become lukewarm? Have you become outside of maybe being cold with a specific purpose to refresh? Or maybe hot with a specific purpose to warm up? Or have you just gotten into this place where it's just kind of nowhere? Have you lost 
the purpose in your life? Have you become lukewarm? Have you started operating your life outside of God's grace and his perspective? Mark chapter 3, 28 through 30, another verse that just freaks people out. Just scared. This is a verse that just scares people. I want, I want to talk about this because, once again, the context helps us. Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 30. Jesus says, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Oh my gosh, did I commit this sin? I will be eternally damned forever, right? But this is interesting because in the backdrop of this context, once again, Jesus is confronting who he is constantly confronting, religious people. Pharisees, people who are abusing and oppressing people based on principles that are not God's heart and his kingdom. In the context, in the next verse says, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Meaning people were beginning to attribute evil into the character of God personified in the flesh. Jesus standing there. When God and Satan are the same, you know what I think about the world? All hope is lost. Why am I breathing? Why am I living? If we're just living within this machine, any Nine Inch Nails fan? Despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. That's, that's theology. That's a sermon. But it's kind of hopeless. Can I be honest this morning? It's informing us there's no truth. Everything just kind of is what it is. God's truth no longer exists. But this happens to us, you guys. I'm going to confront something that I saw on social media a couple weeks ago. Something to the effect of apparently California is banning the Bible and we wonder why California is up in flames. So what we're doing right there is we're attributing God's judgment upon California. Meaning that God is at the hands of setting this state on fire. Causing people to lose their lives. Causing people to be in pain. One of our churches in our denomination, one of the buildings burnt down. Apparently God was behind it. This is a scary place to be because you're beginning to attribute something to God's character that does not apply. And specifically, if you've been hanging out for us for a little while, it does not apply to the new covenant of Jesus. We're, we're beginning to combine good and evil into one. Because apparently God's behind every natural disaster that happens. Apparently God's behind all the evil. He's just in the back where the rat's in the cage. And he's in the back just kind of manipulating Wizard of Oz style. And what's ha what happens is going to happen, right? How many of you guys know that's what God was confronting of the Pharisees? When he's saying, wait a second. God in the flesh here, but you're saying I'm demonic. We get into a very vulnerable place, a very hopeless place, when we begin to filter our lives through a place of cynicism, through a place of literally the world is going to hell in a handbasket. We are losing the salt and the light of what is represented within Christianity. We are losing perspective. We have lost our place. Sounds like a statement from a Christian who has forgotten their purpose. 
that God so loves the world that he sent his only son. He not only did that just to send his son to die for us, but then he equips and empowers his church to be on this earth, partner with his mission to see it accomplished in this world. To not look at the world and once again hate it. To not look at every disaster and say, that's God's judgment because people don't have the Bible in their hands. But literally losing the perspective, gaining back the perspective to understand that we live in a world that God loves so much. Partnering with his plans, his purposes. Partnering with a, a lifestyle that is abundant and rich with the things of God. But many times, that's not what's fed to us. You know that this word post-truth was Oxford Dictionary's 2016 word of the year. It's this. Facts don't matter anymore. It's literally based on how emotional and riled up you get. Post-truth is a word that literally is represented in our culture. It doesn't matter if there's facts. It's about who screams the loudest. We live in a post-truth society, and we buy into it time and time again, and all it does is it murkies out our purpose. We are empowered by God's Spirit to go be the salt and light in this world, to share in His kingdom, His power, His principles, His perspective and life. That is what the church is being called to do, to make a difference in every nook and cranny in society, understanding that that formula matched up with 12 sketchy dudes 2,000 years ago now has equated to billions of people who self-identify as followers of Jesus today. We are a part of that mission. Has there been a lot of bumps and bruises throughout church history? Yes. Do we need to apologize all the time to people who have been burned by that? Absolutely. Are we hypocrites? Yes. But guess what? If you walk that out with humility, people don't really care anymore. Because you're making a place at the table for somebody else. And you're not believing that you sit in the seat of honor right from the get-go. We lose our perspective. But that verse that warns us, this unforgivable sin, it's warning us because it's possible to get to that place. It's possible. We don't know where the line is, but we know what the recipe looks like. It's one where truth, where the good and evil begin to get merged together, where we don't even recognize Jesus when he's right in front of us, where we begin to literally digest more of our news than we do the word of God and how he sees the world. We begin to build a paradigm and a worldview based more about what people are talking about rather than understanding God's called us to be on mission and a part of the solution. Why is sin such a big deal? You know, salvation, this word, it's a real churchy word that just basically means you're being saved from something. And here's what I know. If you feel secure apart from God, if you feel like your life's got it all together, you feel like you've been more fortunate, you feel secure in the things and the kind of the way that your life's been set up, you might not believe that you need to be saved anymore. You might be okay if you turn the news off turn a blind eye outside of your own world and just believe in the lie that everything's fine. Because in your world, according to your own perspective, everything is. But if you feel like me, 
kind of insecure apart from God. You realize your soul has real needs. You realize there's a God-sized hole within you that needs to be filled. And many times we try to grab different things in our life and fill that, that, that gaping hole with different things, but it's, it's God-shaped. Only God can do it. Only God can bring new purpose, new power, a new viewpoint. Your efforts, no matter how great they are, and here's what I love. We're getting to the time of the year where, like, Google or somebody puts out, like, the yearly highlights, you know? And, like, I remember I watched those videos. Like, I cry because I'm like, look what we did as humans. You know, it's pretty impressive, some of these things. Like, breaking the sound barrier from space and all. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just thinking about some of these previous ones that you watch. And you're just enamored. You're like, man, it's so impressive. But no matter how great we are, we, we, we can't deal with the solution of sin and death. We haven't figured out the solution to evil on our own. And this morning, I just believe this is what God's doing to us. He's causing you to start to assess your spiritual bank account. Where's that at this morning? Where's that spiritual bank account? Is it empty? Or is it filled with the richness of God? And here's what I believe this morning. Here's what can happen. Here's what is happening. Here's what God, God is offering you today. He's offering you the mega millions. He's offering you the Powerball. He's offering you the lottery, the spiritual lottery on a scale that literally, finitely, cannot be justified or sought out. It's something that only he can pursue you with. It's something that only he can do. It's something that only he can fill a life that feels spiritually bankrupt and fill it with absolute abundance, power, grace, purpose, new perspective to take wherever you find your life and your life's mess today and bring purpose, power, value, and vision to wherever you find yourself today. Are you rich or are you poor this morning? Let's pray together.